It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Outspoken with White and Jordan. 100% engagement. It's a total disrespect. Download, stand well back, listen. Jim White and Simon Jordan. I don't see that view. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Thanks for listening to Outspoken with White and Jordan. I'm Jim White, and today myself and Simon discussed VAR, which is in the spotlight again after last night's match between Fulham and Wolves. Will we ever get to a point where the technology is no longer the story? Also joining us on the show, Greater Manchester Metro Mayor Andy Burnham, Everton season ticket holder, who's written a letter to the Premier League chair, Alison Britton, calling for the punishment to be declared null and void. Plus, clubs who signed up to the FA's diversity code collectively failed to meet any of their recruitment targets over the past year. We speak to Kick It Out Chief Executive Tony Burnett. This is Outspoken with White and Jordan. Last night, it was Fulham who took all three points against Wolves. Um, you probably saw the highlights this morning, Simon. I know you were late back last did, night. Yep. But Wolves won it, but that is far from the whole story. Uh, I beg your pardon, Fulham won it by three goals to two. Now, this is a story of penalty kicks. Fulham's first penalty to make it 2-1. Semedo made contact with the ball first before touching Kearney, who went down. Penalty given by the on-field referee Michael Salisbury. The VAR Stuart Atwell ruled that Salisbury had not made a clear and obvious error and didn't send him to the screen. That's number one. Then in the dying moments, when it was 2-2, penalty Fulham. Harry Wilson ran across the Wolves area Gomez challenged for the ball and Wilson went down Salisbury would play on but then VAR intervened Atwell insisted it was a clear and obvious error and got Salisbury to go to the monitor with Salisbury changing his mind and awarding the penalty kick Now Wolves have got every right to think that they have been victims of something like this uh, already this season and afterwards Gary O'Neill in a calm and measured way spoke his mind I don't know what to expect really I think I've I had a good honest chat in there with the um, officials and I, I don't know how many points down we are now from PGM MOL reviews obviously these ones will be reviewed and I say we're seven or seven or eight wherever we are seven we go seven so the difference it has on all those people's lives that support Wolves the difference between being on 15 and being on 22 is huge the difference it has on my reputation as a manager at a new club, at a big club, where I'm trying to make an impact to be on 15 rather than being on 22, is irreparable. You can ring me tomorrow and you can say sorry. You can ring me tomorrow and you can stick up for the officials. You can send me a bunch of flowers. Whatever it does, it doesn't make up for the fact that the team I'm in charge of and the team that those supporters follow around the country are seven points short of what we should be. Um, so, yeah, 
I don't know. I said to them that obviously I have choices now. Like I behave how I think I should and I speak to the fourth with respect. So go in there and speak to them honestly and openly, but with respect. Um, and I tell my players to go, no, 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 we're not we're not coming up with anything to make noise. We're not doing social media posts. We're, we're not refusing to shake officials' hands. We're conducting ourselves properly. But there needs to be something coming from the other end because if I just keep doing the same thing and we keep being on the wrong end of stuff, it's like, we might have to try something different here. We might have to make some noise, um, which, which I obviously don't want to do and I don't think that's the right thing to do. But I think you can understand where we are. I mean, it's a, it's a long way. It's a long way into the season now from that Onana incident at Old Trafford and the accumulation of stuff against us is tough to comprehend. So that was Gary O'Neill. Speaking to Sam Matterface after the, the game. Simon, as VAR takes all the headlines again, and it does, are we ever going to get to a point where the technology is no longer the story? Mm, one hopes so. Um, and But until you get subjectivity out of the conversation, it's never going to be. It's now the hobby horse of sections of the media. It is now the default setting to look for any incidents with VAR and scrutinise it and turn it. It, it. The expression clear and obvious is now a stick to hit VAR with because clear and obvious is now becoming subjective because ultimately what's clear and obvious to one person may not be clear and obvious to another. So then you're into the subjectivity of clear and obvious. Now, I mean, I don't. I, I think Gary O'Neill is a very sensible lad. Most, He's more measured than Arteta, Yeah, because it? I think anyone that follows him behind Arteta is going to have learnt the lesson and realised that there was a slight reaction besides the ridiculousness of being supported by Arsenal towards the manager and the consequences have yet to be visited upon him. I'm not entirely sure I concur with the view that impacts his reputation as a manager because this time last year he wasn't even a manager, wasn't even being considered a manager, he was learning his trade. But I get the general perspective of out outcomes. You might want to be in the opponent's penalty box at the end of every game rather than your own constantly. You might not be falling foul of some of these decisions. But I do get that there has been some decisions that have caused him to have um, reactions to it and if the PGMOL officials are constantly apologising and telling him that they've gotten it wrong or, or, or the, the officials full stop not the PGMOL officials but the officials full stop are telling him that they've gotten it wrong and they apologise for red cards not being delivered and so on and so forth then you're going to have this element of frustration I mean look the on-field decisions you've got the, the, there's, a, there's a desire to empower the on-field decision making process so without VAR that first penalty still stands because the on-field referee made a decision. The second penalty, the on-field referee did not make a decision. VAR intervened, and the on-field referee still has the choice. He still has the gift. So if that situation is now being altered by VAR, giving him a choice. Now, what people will say is VAR shouldn't intervene. I concur to some extent. I've always believed that VAR is a resource that should be called for not necessarily interacting. So a referee should referee the game in front of him and then call for VAR. And if referees don't call for it repeatedly and repeatedly digital interventions could have changed the direction, then, then you've got a situation. But in this situation, we go back to the on-field referee. The on-field referee with new information available to him, rather than that moment, he decided that it wasn't a penalty for the second penalty. VAR intervenes because they perceive the subjective term, clear and obvious, is worthy of their intervention. It then throws it back to the on-field referee. If the on-field referee is comfortable and confident with what he saw and then supported by digital imagery, then he should have continued with his original on-field decision. 
The challenge is, is that what do you want VAR to be? Yeah. What is it you want the outcome to be? And Gary is making observations about the repeated nature. First and foremost, it would help if players didn't feel the necessity, including his own, to throw themselves to the ground at every single tiny, minuscule touch that when you get when you get inside a penalty box, that might help the decision-making process. But again, we're in a territory where VAR is going to consistently and constantly be the focus of every single situation where it intervenes, and there's some degree of interpretation. And the argument will be, I mean, you've got, you've got, an, last night you've got a defender and you've got an attacker in Freddie Lundberg and you've got Jamie Carragher on Sky and they're both coming to a different decision. Yeah. yeah. So then tell me about the yeah. answer about yeah. getting expertise that's played the game to give you a definitive outcome because you've got an attacker looking at it from an attacker's point of view. You've got a defender. So what have you got to do? You've got to have a defender and an attacker in Stuckley Park as the expertise on tap for the officials that have never kicked a ball and can't play the game. So what's your message to Gary O'Neill this morning? Um, we were fairly strident in what we thought about Arteta. My, my, no, I, I think he's approached the subject matter in a reasonable uh, 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 outcome. I think the idea that he he's not encouraging his players... Not, the, the, the he's official, saying, bring a bit, let's bring a bit more noise to it. Well, what noise is it you want? Do you want 100% clear up? Is that what you're expecting? Are you expecting a completely error-free? He wants is, to hear from them more this morning. To do what? Well, so they can complain about when they tell them they might have got it wrong. Now the red cards, they've, they've, you know, the fact is you've got a communication line, and you've got a situation where they, they're, 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 they're copping to mistakes that they make, and mistakes will be made, and that's the unfortunate nature of the beast. The digital interventions have proven over the last twelve months, eighteen months, twenty-four months, to be more on the side of credit rather than a debit column. But it would appear that Wolves have had quite a few dubious decisions aided and abetted by players diving in penalty boxes and potentially the subjectivity of VAR intervening. But again, it goes back to the on-field decision. The referee, they, they can't argue about the first penalty because the referee would have given it on-field and that would be the end of the discussion. Yeah. So what's the point of bringing VAR into the conversation? VAR is now the whipping boy for the conversation because VAR didn't intervene. Now, I'd love to know, I would love to know what Gary O'Neill would have said with respect to Gary if those decisions had been in favour of Wolverhampton Wanderers, would he have come on camera and said, VAR isn't working? No, of course. It gave us penalties. Well, that's that right. We should, but they do not. They don't. So there's a lacking in of integrity. If it goes your way, yeah. you're, you're silent. If it goes against you, you're vociferous. That can't be the way. If you want to advance the game, if you want to be in this camp of suggesting that you need to have VAR working at a higher level, when it goes your way, and you know it's gone your way, and you still think it's flawed then why don't you say it? Because mm. they won't. They won't. They won't. And it's exactly the same as we said about Arteta. Varslod won 2-1 up at Newcastle that day. We wouldn't have heard from him. Of course. And therein, therein lies the hypocrisy. I understand the reasons so why. So what's the message? Go on with it. All of you, go on with it. Well, I think the referees, I mean, they can't keep, they can't keep coming out and apologising for getting things wrong. Of course they can if they keep on doing it and people will be pleased with the apology because that's the society that we live in. We need yeah. an apology for everything. But for God's sake, stop making the decisions that require you to have an apology. If you're going to apologise after the event, don't create... When it's a subjective decision, they're not going to apologise for those two penalties. They are subjective. And there's an element of the laws need to be interpreted in a certain way. You don't agree with him when he says decisions are now impacting reputation and livelihoods? Well, I would make the argument that over the course of a season, you get an opportunity to be, the, be, be on the receiving end of good and bad luck, yeah. right? And you've got 15 points, 
and represent. I mean, I noticed in, when I saw on the transcript I saw, and I was quite disappointed to see this. The first thing he said was about his own reputation, and I thought, here we go. It hasn't taken you long to get into the mode of being me, myself, and I as a manager, because the first thing he said was my reputation. Now that might be a transcript that was out of kilter with what actually happened, but if that was, why is it your reputation that's the most primary, first and foremost? Yeah, the clubs, the clubs' finances, the players, the points—they all go hand in hand. Look, I I still maintain like you do. That there is a there is a there was an improvement in VAR against decision making processes of years gone past, but I still think the issue lies with the on field referees having the courage of their convictions to be able to stand by the decisions that they've made more readily than sometimes they do. The world's most dangerous download, outspoken with White and Jordan from the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. This Wayne, a Liverpool fan, we want accuracy. That's all we want. And pacey, accurate decisions. I agree with you on that. I was at Tottenham on Sunday and it could be quicker. And that's that, all I would that's say. Fine. That's and, fine. And, and we say. all agree that yeah. the, the protocols that determine the outcomes are too... They are too slow. Yeah. I agree with the fans. I, as a fan myself, I agree sometimes you're sat there going, come on come now. on. this is, yeah. this is yeah, too I much. Agree. I agree. I agree with that entirely. Um, here's John, Nottingham Forest fan, who's been waiting patiently. John... It's here to stay. You're going to get more that, other than less of VAR. So more of it's on the way, mate. You better get used to it. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, by the way, guys. Um, <laughs> no problem. Could, uh, could I, could I, I've got a couple of things to run through really quickly. I mean, God forbid they bring more in, but, but either way, I, want, I just want to give context to my reasoning, mm-hmm. my suggestions and, and why, if that's okay. So I, I believe we should be starting with football's a game of passion. It's, it's spontaneity on and off pitch, it's fans celebrating goals real time, etc. Imagine the Aguero moment with AAR. Just imagine that ruined. Um, I think I think if you ask most fans these days, just to make Simon's point, you know, in the old days complaining about decisions, etc. I think if you ask them now, having seen what VAR has done to the game of, of enjoying it as a spectacle, they'd probably say, Okay, we were wrong, let's go back to the old ways. However, it's here to stay. Can I suggest this is my plan for VAR for what it's worth. Yeah. Okay. I think the auto offsides needs to come in. However, if there's a way of having a small margin in favour of strikers, great. So the on-field flags can be raised on the pitch as it happens. That's it. The goal line tech stays up, of course. Now, regards things such as decisions made by the referee, handballs, penalties, fouls, etc. I honestly think you've got to embolden the referees. They've got to be allowed to make the decisions and... The fans are just going to have to deal with it, unfortunately. I personally think that they should have retrospective action. So if a player, because most decisions, i.e. a penalty that isn't a penalty, or a handball goal, etc., it's usually players that are diving, feigning diving, committing fouls. I think if there's a goal scored from a penalty, that upon reflection, looking at it camera-wise after the event, after the game, and it's quite you know, openly honestly, that the player has dived to get that penalty, then they should get retrospective bans. Mm. Okay, John, can I, I simplify this? And I, I hear what you're saying and your points are well made. Here's the situation, do you not agree? If VAR goes for a certain club, if it yeah. goes in favour of a certain club, yeah. the manager's happy and quietly does a post-match yeah. interview. If it goes against his side and they lose yeah. the match, yeah. they speak out. Agreed. I've got I've got my own points on that though, Jim. I honestly think, and, and this has happened. I've been, you know, I, I go to Forest regularly, and I've I've sat in the stands. Every single one of my friends that go to matches crave, if <laughs> going back to the championship in some respects, because we love the spontaneity. We can deal with the bad decisions. We might moan during the game. We might moan afterwards. 
but I would not replace that, the, the enjoyment of watching the game, instead of you score a goal, you don't celebrate as much as you would thinking, oh, this is going to be offside, is it offside, is it not offside? I'm, I'm happy to take that on the chin. Um, one other thing I'd also say, Jim, just as, uh, and Simon, as, as my point as well, I think referees' standards on the pitch have gone down purely because it's like um, a degenerative skill. If you don't practice it, it's almost like bringing in, you know, um, self-driving cars. The skill of the driver is going to go downhill. And I think referees now, they've got that extra um, ability to go to the cameras, sorry, go to VAR. Mm -hmm. They can make decisions being careful because they know that they're going to get backed up. And it's... you can see the performance of the referees. They look as yeah, though they've had the, yeah. um, the, the I, I, you know, maybe, maybe I'm, a, I'm a romanticist. but No, actually, I, I hear what you're saying, John. Your points yeah. are well made. And li- listen, we've given you a bunch of airtime, and we're, we're happy to do that because your argument's a decent one, John the Forest fan. The fact is, IFAB are here today, Simon, and the fact is we're going to see more of VAR than less. Yeah, when people have short memories. I reckon people, we just people, have to get on with it. People have short memories. I remember writing an article, I was just looking at it, in, whilst the, the fellow was talking in 2005 for The Guardian, talking about technology and football. Are we seeing, and I know I'm talking off the top of my head, are we seeing this outrage in every other league around the world about VAR and its implementation? Are we seeing the level of dissent and discontent? Because obviously we were told by Mikel Arteta that the refereeing standard in this country was worse than everywhere else. And then we've seen a whole body of refereeing decisions across the continent were equally as bad. So that ridiculous assertion was, was crushed in the cradle. But, you know, you look at this, every sport, every sport can embrace technology except football. Yeah, every sport. Yeah, football's got to do it because other sports, as you rightly say, Simon, have embraced it and get on with it. I'm afraid football's just got to do the same. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare Tri-Term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Download, stand well back, listen. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. At this particular stage in the proceedings, I would ask this question. Are the FA, Simon, on a hiding to nothing, really, when it comes to their diversity code? Has it well and truly failed? In total, 51 clubs from across the Premier League the Football League and Women's Super League signed up on a vol- on a voluntary basis to take part in this diversity code, with each club having to provide data on their workforce annually. So what did that involve? Well, in signing up, the clubs agreed that 
of new executive appointments, so we're talking executive level, and team operations appointments will be from a black, Asian or of mixed heritage background, with 30% female. 25% of new coaching appointments will be black, Asian or of mixed heritage, and 10% of senior coaching appointments. That's what they were aiming for. The FA's chief executive, Mark Bullingham, says progress has been, quotes, slower than hoped three years since the launch of the code itself. I ask the question again, are the FA on a hiding to nothing when it comes to this code? Has it well and truly failed? The chief executive of Kick It Out is Tony Burnett, and Tony joins us live this lunchtime. Tony, hi to you. Um, is is Bullingham's is Bullingham's response good enough in your eyes, Tony? That the the progress has been slower than hoped. Um, well, morning, Jim. Morning, Simon. I think the afternoon, rather. The I afternoon, think the intent Tony. was always positive. I think I think our worry is is we, we expressed over the weekend that we've wasted probably two years now. We, we had a conversation three years ago when this idea was first mooted, and we said. At the time, you know, we'll support what you're trying to do, but it's not the, the solution that is going to work. And, and for two reasons. Firstly, the Football Leadership Diversity Code only focused on recruitment. so the, And that's just a small snapshot of, of the problem when it comes to how we expand opportunities for, for talent in football. And the second thing is the FA had no teeth to make it mandatory. So only half the clubs signed up. So you've got, you've got a subset of data that only half the clubs sign up to which is just not effective at all in driving any sort of change. And the positive out of that, uh, gents, for me is is we've got we've now got to a realistic discussion about what's needed, and that's a conversation we've had before, which is transparent yeah. and open data across the game, so we can well, a- identify the problems and put fixes in place. I mean, Tony, you, you, at, at the moment it's voluntary, so the the clubs get involved in it if they want to get involved in it. But what does mandatory look like? Does mandatory not look like quotas being imposed? Not, not, not at all. I mean, well, firstly, Jim, they're quotas unless you can you can evidence some very specific things that I think it's only been used once that I know of in UK. It's illegal in the UK. So we would never advocate quotas. We'd advocate targets because I think targets signify an intent to drive change. And and But, but we can't advocate quotas. There's a massive difference, Simon. There's well, a huge for the purpose of an argument where you're debating the words voluntary and mandatory, and then you're looking at targets of 15%. And quotas of fifteen percent, but we're, bit, we're we're splitting hairs really because the idea no, that Tony's saying not uh, Tony's saying targets, not quotas. Uh, yeah, I know that because ultimately quotas put us in, on the other side of the argument where it becomes a, a an, 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 an illegality criteria. But really and truly, by heading towards fifteen percent, you're heading towards a form of quota. No, well, no, I, I disagree there, Simon. So the, the challenge with this, and I think there's, there's a bit we're missing before. I know we've discussed this in the past. The, the, the headline problem at the minute is we haven't got a clue what the landscape looks like. We've got a little bit of anecdotal data. Anecdotal data. We've got bits of data from various sources. We still haven't got a full picture of what the problem is. So the targets conversation is really challenging when we haven't got a clue what the, the landscape looks like in most of the parts of football. But when it comes to, to, so that's the first step, but when it comes to driving in, 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 uh, intentional change, that's what we use targets for in, in all forms of business. And every organisation I've worked in has had targets. So where do we get these targets None of the from, Tony? If we, if we have no background knowledge as to the likely outcomes and the reasons why we're putting these targets in place because we don't have any real data, where did these targets come from? The FLDC targets. 
Or whatever targets we're talking about, whether it's 25% yeah, the, the of the coaching we play. Well, the Football Leadership Diversity Code, they set targets kind of two or three years ago. Based but upon what? Again, again exactly. They, they, and that's that's the problem. They were quite meaningless. And, and what, we're today, what we're saying now is we want to see the full data set across football. Uh, and, you know, but yeah, we, we want to understand how the land lies currently and what we need to do to drive change. And more importantly, where the blockages are. That's the only way we drive change. So um, it's positive the Football Leadership Diversity Code has tried, positive intent, but it's failed. Let's get to the real conversation now about how we how we get transparent data across football so we can understand the problems. So if you've got 51% of clubs signed up to it, aren't you able to get, whilst it's not a, a, a representation of the entire 92 clubs, aren't you able to get some information from those 51% of clubs that can be empirical data that can be used that can then be extrapolated up to make some more sense out of targets that seem to have been just picked out of thin air and used with the more coherency than the yeah. current targeting. No, in, in, in all honesty, because you know, in a normal organisation, we'd expect to see workforce representation data. So every every employee, the background, et cetera, et cetera, all targets give us. So some clubs, for example, of the 90s or the 51 that were involved, will have minimum recruitment in, in any any given year because they might have you know small number of vacancies or they might, they might be financially restricted. So who they're recruiting and what, what that looks like in terms of percentages of people from different backgrounds is really irrelevant. It also doesn't tell us how many people left the organisation or, or what, what roles people occupy in various parts of the organisation. So it was really a flawed concept. It, you know, right idea, wanting to drive change, but flawed from the outset. So now it's time to move on. Let's have a conversation about what's going to work to drive change in football. And that's a transparent data set right across the game. All 92 clubs sharing workforce representation yeah. data. Tony, Tony it's, it makes pretty dismal reading, doesn't it? Between August the 1st, 2022 and July the 31st, 2023, the clubs collectively failed to meet any of these recruitment targets. And I, I explained briefly what they were. 15% of new executive appointments uh, will be from a black, Asian or mixed heritage background. 25% of new coaching appointments will be black, Asian or mixed heritage. Now, where are we going with it? Would you back sanctions for any clubs who fail to meet the targets? Well, we back sanctions for. So I think I think firstly, what we back is forget the football leadership diversity code. It's finished. It's a flawed concept. I think what we would say is we, we need to now get moved to a situation where clubs are mandated to provide workforce representation data. That should be mandated. Now I know that Premier League would say, for example, that clubs already do that through their scheme called Pledis. And yes, I know they do, but the, the, the data isn't transparent. The, the data is not transparent. They don't share it with us. They don't share it with anybody. And so collecting data in your own house that you kind of keep to yourselves, is for, for us, doesn't feel like the right way forward. Yeah, it's pointless. Let's have so a why conversation would they, Why it. would the big league not share the information with you? That's a good question, Simon. I have no idea. That's but a good conversation them? I've been having for three years. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And so why wouldn't in, Richard in, Masters be an advocate of detailing that the Premier League clubs abide by a reasonable request to understand who's working in those businesses, given the country wants to believe yeah. in equal opportunities, not equal outcomes, but equal opportunities, and it's a Absolutely. policy of most sensible people in this country. Why would the Premier League resist that? Because it's a governance they could put over their clubs, isn't it? It completely is. And, and I think I'm hoping really now, Simon, that's exactly where they're going. But it's been a long, hard road of kicking and screaming to kind of say, and even going down the road of we've advocated that we have to move towards the football regulator to mandate that clubs have to provide this data. We'd much rather the Premier League said, 
here's the data, let's have a conversation about it because then we can work together to find out where the problems are. Tony, when the FA come up with this um, this code, the whole idea of the code, some some many, many, many months ago, why were you and Kick It Out not consulted? Why were you not part of the conversation or were you? We were part of the initial conversation and we advised at the time, and I don't want to sound like we said, you know, kind of, um, we told you so, because that's not where I'm coming from. But at the time, we said the only way you solve this problem is by a comprehensive set of workforce data. And what we were told at the time was that 92 clubs would not agree to that. And the only thing they would agree to is to provide a subset of data, which is which is recruitment. Um, and only a few clubs would do it. So we've now wasted three years of something we knew wouldn't really work. So we're really hoping now that football gets its heads together. And I'll just give you one example of, of an organisation that is doing this the right way now, that's coming for quite a lot of stake, is, is refereeing. The PGML and the FA are, are doing all the stuff behind the scenes that we would expect the rest of football to do. Comprehensive data set, really detailed action plan. They know what the issues are. They've got plans to change. You'll see referee refereeing become more diverse over the next two years because of that. So there's a, there's a benchmark for success that they can follow tomorrow. I'm just curious, though, Tony. I, I, I'm trying to put myself back in a position of being a club owner, being asked to disclose through my human resources function the nature of my workforce and the movements mm. of roles. And, of course, behind that, the detail of interviewing and the recruitment process. Because I'm trying to understand what my objection would be to it, sitting in a room, because you know what people won't do. You don't know, seemingly, as a leading voice why they won't do it. And I find that a bit perplexing and a failing on your part because if they tell you what they won't do, why aren't you able to get them to tell you why they won't do it? Well, there's, there are some things, obviously, that, that you know, I wouldn't share in terms of private conversations, Simon. There, there are two things that I know that are, that are potential blockages. I think one is that the data, although it's collected through this scheme called Pledis, it's in a very inconsistent format. And so I think there's a reluctance to share it because essentially it would mean that we'd have to do our own interpretation of what the data looks like. But the second one, I think, just being openly honest, the conversations I've had, the clubs are nervous about sharing their data because of what it would mean. If you're a diverse, very a club in a really diverse community, for example, and your data isn't good, there is a nervousness, and there always is a nervousness in these areas about sharing data when it comes to this issue. Now, is that right? No, it's not. But reputational risk, I think, is the biggest challenge we've got to overcome here when it comes to clubs' willingness to share their data. Tony, as always, we thank you for your uh, time and your contribution. Uh, Tony Burnett is the chief executive of Kick It Out. It does seem, though, Simon, that um, the clubs, it the has cl been an almighty waste of time. Well, look, since the, this was brought in, the clubs. And again, I put myself in a situation where there's certain obligations that you have to provide as owning a business. If you have a certain number of employees, you have to disclose who those employees are. If you've got more than 250 employees, you're legally bound as a company to disclose the makeup of your employees. Now, it's one thing to suggest that people have got reputational concerns. Um, and they would be concerned, given the information is confidential mm. and can be retained under confidentiality and can be retained in a situation where you're only analysing, that's a moot argument because it's not something that can be weaponized and put into the public domain. What people are frightened of, if they are indeed frightened of anything, is the idea that targets will be turned into quotas and quotas will be turned into consequences. Yeah. So when you start picking yeah. figures out of the air, saying I want 15% executive appointments to be from one particular community, 50% from something else, you may say that's targets. When you start turning it into a, a, an obligation upon businesses and people start to get judged by those standards, and then all of a sudden those standards aren't met, what's the necessary consequence of that? 
some form of reaction to it. And that might be the reasons why. Because we've just heard the chief executive of Kick It Out tell us that there is no science behind how they've got to these targets. Well, okay. if you don't know what the science is, okay. and you're the people representing the communities that are unrepresented, who are we supposed to know then? At, at the same time, though, you, you would agree the FA have got a bit of answering to do as well, because Bullingham says progress has been slower than but hoped. Not, but, but with due respect, it's got nothing to do with the FA. Why don't you go to the they EFL? They launched the court. Well, hold on. The FA have, are not controlling the Rooney policy that was brought in by the EFL. The EFL brought that in of their own volition. The Premier League do their own thing. So the Premier League take no guidance from the FA. The EFL take limited guidance. So now we're going to say that it's the FA. So if you really wanted to sit here with Rick Parry and with Trevor Birch or with Richard Masters and say, as the, govern as the governing bodies, the real authority, we all know that the tail wags the dog. We want you to implement this code. Now, we're going to hide behind an organisation that we know is ineffective, is being replaced by an independent regulator because the ultimate regulator, which is the FA, doesn't do their jobs. This is not good enough from Kick It Out. It's all well and good coming on and making a lot of noise about what you think you're entitled to and how things are failing. It's much more difficult to tell you what the solutions are. Download, stand well back, listen. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Thanks for listening to Outspoken with White and Jordan. Please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts from. We'll be back tomorrow to bring you the best of the show. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.